Uh, it may look like a briefing, probably more than Sunday school notes. Uh, those of you who are in my covenants class, you're used to that. Uh, but if you're not, you're looking going, oh my goodness, there's four pages of notes here. And uh, that's pretty normal. And I, you know, I'd encourage you if, uh, to, to think about taking one of the Bible Institute classes sometimes or getting involved in that to really uh, deepen, deepen your understanding of God's Word and how His Word works together and even the theologies that we see through Scripture. Uh, it never hurts us to deepen ourselves and deepen our understanding of God's Word as our, as our roots grow deeper, our, our outreach gets wider, and our love for Him gets stronger. And so I'd encourage you to do that. In fact, uh, toward the middle of September, we'll be starting up two new classes. There'll be a class on Old Testament, uh, uh, Old Testament survey, which will give you a general understanding of each of the different Old Testament books as we work our way through that. So you get an understanding of how the Old Testament not only fits together, but what's just a general, you know, Route 66 idea. You're just driving along, seeing the sights, not getting super deep into each book, but uh, we'll be doing that. And then we'll also, we're also going to have another uh, class on the theology of God and the theology of Jesus Christ. So uh, I'd encourage you, it, you know, the, those ones will meet on a Wednesday night. But uh, look, look for opportunities to continually deepen, deepen and strengthen your faith. And one of those ways, the blessings we have here at church is the Bible Institute. And so I'd encourage you to, to do that. We're going to take our Bibles this morning. We're going to be in Genesis for the most part. Then we'll get to Romans and Galatians a little bit. We'll be a little bit all over the, uh, all over the Word of God. But that's the, that's the way uh, the Abrahamic Covenant, which is what we have been finishing in my class, uh, on covenants and promises, that's what we're finishing up. And so we were going to, we're going to do that. And uh, we'll see how that ties in. It even ties in to the book of Daniel and understanding when you, to think any of your Old Testament uh, stories, any of your Old Testament situations, they very much uh, tie into this concept of what we call the Abrahamic covenant. The, the covenants are very much foreshadowing. They help us to see. Now, if you're like me, I, I love foreshadowing. There are certain movies. Uh, there's, a, there's a guy who does movies, M. Night Shyamalan, and he does these movies, and there's always this foreshadowing, these things that are taking place through the movie. And have you ever been watching a movie or you're, you're reading a book, and like right before you're, they're going to reveal what happens, all of a sudden you put it together, and you're like, oh, it, it, this, and this, and this, and, and you get all excited because you think you just figured it out, and then they reveal it all anyway, 30 seconds later. But you get excited because all of a sudden you've put all the pieces together and the story comes to life. Well, that's what often happens with, with the covenants, especially the Abrahamic covenant, and how there's these breadcrumbs, these, these things that are nuggets that are put out there, and how it really comes to fulfillment when we get to Jesus Christ. And it just, it starts to bring it all together. It gets exciting. And so uh, the idea of foreshadowing through the covenants is, is very prevalent. I wrote down there, from Abraham onward, the Bible expounds God's promises uh, to and through Abraham in order to gain a fuller appreciation uh, and understanding of the covenant that God made with Abraham. It's important for us to see what came before, uh, and then it will help us understand what lies ahead. And the Abrahamic covenant is very much a a linchpin. It's a turning point in a lot of things with the scriptures. It's, it's loaded. 
And so as we, as we look at, we look at the Abrahamic covenant, let's, let's do a little bit of background to, to bring everybody up to speed. Some of you in my class, you get a little bit of review here, and yet we're not going to go deep because looking across the room and understanding most of the Bible, Bible background and knowledge here, uh, I'm not going to go deep into some of these stories. But it's the Bible we know. The scripture start. God created the world. He created everything that's in it. He creates man. He creates Adam. He creates Eve. And they're beautifully in the garden. They're wonderfully there. Everything's great. They can have anything they want except for what God tells them. You may not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And you can't, you can't do that. So Adam and Eve going in the garden. We know that the serpent, by the time we get to Genesis 3, the serpent who's subtle and crafty, he, he gets into the situation and he gets Eve to the point where Eve is now going to be tempted. She's going to give, she eat, give in, eat the fruit. Adam with her is going to do that. And what ends up happening is, is God, a man rebels against God. And it thrusts the world that we live in into sinfulness and to despair. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden and there is, there is punishment that is given there. But what's interesting is the promise, the covenant that God gives to Adam. Notice in uh, chapter 3 of Genesis. Genesis 3, verse 15. God, God has a plan. God has a plan for humanity. Humanity is thrust into sinfulness. Fellowship with our holy God has been broken. Humanity is now, we're, we're sinners. And because we're sinners, we sin, and it creates that broken fellowship with God. But God is going to make a promise in chapter 3, verse 15. He says, and the Lord, uh, sorry, wrong chapter for me. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, what the promise is there is that God looks and says to the serpent, to Adam and Eve, he says, there's going to be enmity. There's going to be division between, between you, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the, the serpent. And there's going to be this division. And we know as scriptures unfold that it's going to be those who are living for Christ, those who are living for Satan. But what ends up happening is the promise is that there is going to be one who, yes, you're going to, to strike at his heel, Satan, but he is going to crush your head. And uh, pastor, pastor alluded to it, I believe, on Wednesday night, just talking about that Jesus Christ, though Satan bites at him, though he suffers, though he is uh, hung on the cross, ultimately through the cross, Jesus Christ strikes the last blow. Now we have, we have the hindsight. We, we, we get to look back at the movie. We've seen it all play out. We know what's going to happen. But for the scriptures, as they're progressively unfolding... They didn't know who this promised one was going to be. Who is, who is this one going to, to be that's going to come after? So Adam and Eve are thrust out of the garden, and it's only a matter of time before the offspring of the women, woman, the humanity, and the offspring of Satan, just there, there's a battle going on. We see it by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, there is ultimate battle of good versus evil, of right versus wrong, and we get to the point where uh, what we see is, uh, well, there's Genesis 3.15. Uh, Genesis 6, the Lord says, saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of his thought of the heart was only evil continually. So humanity is, is just following into a point of utter devastation, utter wickedness, 
And it gets to the point that God, it repents the Lord that he's made. He's sorry that he made the world. And now he's going to come to the point where he's going to destroy the world. But we know in chapter 6, verse 8, Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. The Noahic covenant that, that comes about because of the wickedness, God provides an ark. Now, why, why does he do that? Part of the reason he does that is because of the promise he made to Adam in Genesis 3.15. If he kills everybody on the earth, that negates that promise in Genesis 3. Because that promise in Genesis 3 is given to Adam, it is there present, and it is going to be fulfilled. So God, in his wisdom and his sovereignty, he sees that humanity is there. It is wicked, but he finds grace in the eyes. Noah finds grace in the eyes of God. And God is going to use Noah and say, okay, Noah, I wanted to do something. In the face of ever-present wickedness, one stood out as righteous. Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord, and God commands Noah to build this massive creation preservation project. The, the ark is very much about preservation. Preservation of humanity, preservation of his creation, and, and preservation of his promise that he made back to, to uh, Adam. And so he says to him, he says, but I will, Noah, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. And you shall enter the ark, and you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. They're all going to enter in. And, and ultimately we know, as, as Peter talks about, it was open to whoever wanted to get on the ark. But Noah preached repentance, but the people rejected. And God, in his, God protects Noah. All As the flood comes, it destroys the wickedness on the earth. We, we're well aware of that. And God remembers verse, chapter 8, verse 1. It says that, uh, and, the, and God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him with the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. And we know that the floods are going to recede. The waters are going to recede. Noah is on, on Mount Ararat. He's there. He gets off of the ark eventually. They create uh, an altar. He worships God. And then God is going to, to come to him and he's going to say, I want to, I want to continue. I want to expand my covenant, my promise to you. Not only did I promise and, and covenant with you to take you through this flood, but I'm going to covenant with you, with all of humanity, that all flesh shall never again be cut off by the waters of the flood. Neither shall again, there again, be a flood to destroy the whole earth. I will establish, I establish my covenant, which I am making. So he makes this covenant. Remember, a covenant, and we actually talked about it in here, a covenant is not just a contract that if you break it, no big deal. This is a personal relationship that is entered into, and it has binding consequences. We'll talk about those in a second. He says, I set my bow in the cloud. What's interesting, we talked about in our, our class, the word that's used for bow there, there's not a Hebrew word for rainbow. The word that is used is actually the archer's bow, the weapon of destruction. He, he, God is saying, I'm going to set down my weapon of destruction and it's going, to be, it's going to be there. I'm not going to destroy the world that way again. And it shall be a sign of the covenant. So when you see that rainbow, when we see that rainbow today, it is still present. The Noahic covenant that God, the, the, the agreement that God made with Noah way back is still present today. When we see that rainbow in the skies, we know that God has set his bow of destruction down and will not destroy the earth again with a flood as he, as he promised. So, so Noah is there. God covenants, God's covenant with Noah and humanity ensures that his covenant with Adam is securely intact. 
So as we unfold scriptures and God progressively reveals through the, through the times of innocence and conscience and God is working in people's conscience now, he makes this, this covenant with Abraham and he's saying, my promise that I made to Adam is still secure. So as Adam and Noah, and Noah continually is unfolded here, God covenants, he ensures that the one will come to defeat wickedness. But like Adam, it doesn't take long for Noah's descendants to plunge again into sin. It causes, they, they disobey that, that response to the covenant. Noah was told, go, multiply, fill the earth. And yet we see at the Tower of Babel that they're not filling the earth. They're all trying to come together and be one, one world, one unified, one unified group. And they're not doing what God has commanded. So God intervenes and God scatters the people, scatters them all around the world and, and pushing them out because that is what God desired and that was part of God's plan. So you have the, the end of the Tower of Babel. It, it flows out. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter 12, uh, you're, you're going to be introduced and we're introduced to this, this new individual called Abraham. Oh, at this time he's called Abram. But I'm just going to keep saying Abraham so I don't have to try and distinguish at what point in my mind do I change from Abram to Abraham back to Abram. We're just going to call him Abraham and hopefully you're all good with that and you understand. Uh, what's interesting about Abraham is he's called out of Ur of the Chaldees, which is the same general area where the Tower of Babel was. So this, this concept of the Tower of Babel, God punishing, God you know, dispersing, it wouldn't have been completely foreign to, to Abraham, but God looks at Abraham in chapter 12, and now he's going to look to Abraham and say, okay, I want you, Abraham, I want you to get out of the country and from your kindred and from your father's house onto a land that I will show you. And he's going to, he's going to give Abraham a, a number of, this is what I will do. And when God says, I will, it's going to be done. And he looks and says, I will give you a, a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, verse 2. And I will bless you and make thy name great, and you shall be a blessing to, to others. And I will bless them that bless you, and I will curse them that curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So we see that ultimately when you, when you boil the Abrahamic covenant down, you get three basic elements. You get the land... There's the offspring and universal blessing, or you could put blessing, and there's personal blessing and universal blessing uh, that occurs. But land, land, offspring, or seed, and blessing. God promises to Abraham a land. At this point in chapter 12, he doesn't know what land it is. He's just saying, God knows, but Abraham doesn't. Abraham just follows after, and he's going to follow God. But I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you offspring. Now, at this point, we know the story of Abraham and Sarah. They don't have children yet. In fact, they're getting up in age. They're getting past the years of childbearing. But God promises to them that you will have offspring. And then he promises that you will be a blessing to others. Others will be blessed by you as people bless you and your kindred and your nation. They will be blessed. And as they curse you, and they, will be, they themselves will be cursed. So, so God is going to simply unfold those, those keys. But that's really important. When you start playing through some of the situations that occur, whether it's the exodus, when they're taken away to Egypt, they're not in the land. When you get to the Babylonian exile, Daniel, a number of you are studying Daniel with pastor. Why, why does Daniel, why, why do the people want to get back to Israel? Is it just because, you know, it would be like me saying, well, I just, I want to go back and live in Chicago. I don't really. But 
that's, that's my home. That's where I grew up. That's, that's what I knew. Actually, I've lived here almost longer than I've lived there. So, uh, but that is, that was what I'm used to. So is it just me saying, well, I just, I really like the food and I want to go back. It's more than just a longing for, I like the climate or I like, like my food back in my homeland. It is very much a tie back to this promise. This is the land of promise. Daniel understands. Those in exile understood. We are not in the place of God's blessing. We are not where God wanted us to be. God has promised us this land. God says we are going to be back in the land. I want to be back in the land. And that becomes the longing of many of their hearts. So, so the Abrahamic covenant weaves its way through Scripture continually. So as, as the Abrahamic covenant is unfolded, and you can go back, read chapter, there's chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17, chapter 22, all start to expand upon that little bit that was given in chapter 12. More and more is given about this covenant to, that's given to Abraham. But in uh, chapter, chapter 15, if you go there for a second, there's this, this ceremony that Abraham goes through with God. And actually, it's just God goes through the ceremony. How do we, when we, look at, when we look at what God is doing, God's covenant to Abraham, it has lasting implications for us. And is it going to be fulfilled? How do we know that the, the, the land, the seed, the, the offspring, the blessing, that those are really going to be fulfilled? Well, when you get to, when you get to Genesis chapter 15, you're going you're gonna to see that God is going to, to do something. Down in verse 9, he starts to say to Abraham, All right, take a heifer three years old, a she-goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. Abraham takes all of these. He divides them in the midst and lays each piece one by one against each other. So what, what he does, and it's, it's gory, it's intense. I actually looked for a picture, and the only pictures I could find I didn't want to put up here. Because what they would do, Abraham literally took a cow and split it right, right down the middle. You, you, can, you can picture, he takes a goat and does the same thing. He lays half on this side, half on this side. Goat on this side, goat on this side. The only ones he doesn't split are the, the birds. He just lays them both opposite of each other. But he hews all these animals in half. You can picture the carnage. You can picture the blood running between. And Abraham does all of this. You can, you can picture how he is looking. This is part of the, the ancient Near Eastern covenant-making ceremonies. And what happens is you have God then, Abraham, Abraham falls asleep. Uh, verse 12, And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and lo, uh, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said, to, he said to Abraham, God said, Know of a surety that your seed, your offspring, your children shall be a stranger in the land and not theirs, and they will serve him 400 years. And he actually gives a little prophecy about the Egyptian uh, exile, that they're going to go down into Egypt, but he's going to come back as a great nation. And then uh, he goes down, and it came to pass, verse 17, when the sun went down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. And the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto your seed... Have I given this land from the Egypt to the river Euphrates? And he goes on. But what happens here is the this, this smoking fire, the, as it goes through, it is, G, it is God himself walking, passing through these, these split open animals. And what is pictured in this covenant-making ceremony is God is saying, 
the promises that I have made to you, Abraham, this promise of the land, the promise of you having offspring that are going to be in the land, the promise that there will be blessing. If I do not make it come true, may what you have done to these animals be done to me. That is the covenant that God is making with Abraham. He's saying this is going to happen. Now we know that because of God's faithfulness, because God is true, because God is righteous, that those things are going to happen anyway. But he, he pronounces this, this judgment upon himself saying, I will, I will do it. And, and God brings Abraham to the point where he says, this is the covenant I'm going to make with you. And now I want you, there are some aspects that I want you to be keeping. I want, I want you to be doing. And 17 through chapter 15, 17 through 21, give us a, a lot of that covenant making. And it's interesting, the word that he's used for make a covenant is to cut a covenant. Doesn't that graphically portray it? To cut a covenant, to, to cut it through. And so God makes this covenant with Abraham and saying, this is going to happen. So the ceremony involves this oath that is made between the covenant partners. It is, it is intense. It is not just simply, a, oh, I hope this will happen. God is saying, this is what is going to happen, Abraham. This is my promise, my covenant to you. And if it doesn't, may that happen to me. So God, God will keep his covenant, his promises, by his own commitment to do so. God alone established his covenant. Abraham never passed through. The tradition would be as if, if Bob and I were making a covenant, we would both pass through these, these animals to both say to each other, this, may this happen if we don't. In fact, later on, Abraham does it with Abimelech. But in this case, God alone passes through. He says, it's not even anything you're going to do, Abraham. This is what I am going to do for you. And Abraham is, is given that blessing by God. But he does expect obedience to his covenant commands. Now, some will look and say, well, wait, isn't, isn't that like, doesn't he have to work for it? I thought you said that this is an unconditional covenant, that, that God is just going to do it. But isn't it, it, it reminds me a lot of, a lot of uh, salvation. Think about when I get saved, it's not by works that I do. It is by God's grace. He alone saves me. My faith is placed in him, but he saves me. But yet God expects me to obey his commands. He still ex- he expects me to do that. In spite, of our, in spite of our faithfulness, unfaithfulness and disobedience, God does not let us go. He does not break his covenant with us. We experience a divine faithfulness even in spite of our human unfaithfulness. So, Yes, God saves me, but I have a response to him. My, my, my works don't save me. That becomes the big debate in the Old Testament. Is it my works or my faith? Or New Testament, works or faith, works or faith. And it's when I have faith, my works will demonstrate my faith because I'm obeying the, the divine commands from God. What's interesting is as you look at Israel's history, can you not see this happening where you have God's faithfulness and you have Israel's unfaithfulness, God's faithfulness, Israel's unfaithfulness. I mean, to the point where he has Hosea go and marry a prostitute in order to demonstrate and show the picture of Israel. This is what you've done to me. We have this covenant together, and yet you have been completely unfaithful, just like this, this woman who is running away from Hosea, and yet he's coming back and he's remarrying her, and she runs away again, and he goes back and he brings her, just like our covenant-keeping God. He is faithful 
even in spite of our unfaithfulness. I'm so thankful that he is, even in the New Testament era, knowing that we have a faithful God despite, despite our, in spite of our unfaithfulness. Now what happens is, in Genesis 17, Abraham is given the sign of the covenant. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the sign is the rainbow. We have the Mosaic covenant, we're going to see the sign is the Sabbath. We're going to see here the sign of the covenant that is given to Abraham is circumcision. In chapter 17, Abraham is told, all right, this is what you're going to do. You're going to come to the point where I want you to take every man in your household, every single one who is a servant, who is of your lineage, you're going to circumcise them. He says every child on the eighth day, you're going to, every male child is going to be circumcised. And so he makes this, and he says, this is the sign of the covenant. Positively, and if you want the notes, I can give you the notes. I gave a lot longer, more in-depth discussion last week in my class. But positively, circumcision symbolized complete devotion to the service of God as a priesthood. Israel, the Jews, were a holy nation, a divine priesthood. They were to be going out, to be doing the work of God, and devoted to them. And circumcision was a sign of that devotion. Negatively, it, it showed the break, breaking covenant faithfulness to Jehovah, and to be disloyal to the covenants uh, demanded uh, the covenants demand to is uh, graphically portrayed in the cutting off and the discarding of the skin. Uh, chapter 17, verse, uh, verse 14, maybe. And the uncircumcised man-child whose flesh of the foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So for a Jewish man to not, to not circumcise their child was to, to remove the blessings of God, to remove them out of covenant faithfulness. It was a serious, serious offense and a serious uh, portrayal and picture of what is happening. The sign of the covenant was a daily reminder that they individually and they as a nation belonged to God. And so, so God gives all of chapter 17, basically, where he's going to look and say, this, this is a big deal. This is a, this is a huge thing. In fact, we, we often, let's just be honest, we often dance around the subject. We don't want to talk about it because it makes us feel uncomfortable or awkward or, or whatever it may be. But the concept of, of circumcision goes throughout Scripture. In fact, uh, God talks about the circumcision of our heart. When we get to the new covenant in our class and we study about it, it talks about, it talks about that God has to circumcise the heart or cut away the old flesh the worldliness, the sinfulness in our heart in order to give us this new life. And it, it occurs there. So this, this concept does go through, does go through scriptures. Now, prior to this point, Abraham still had no direct offspring through Sarah. Okay, he does have Ishmael. And he's hoping that at this point, Ishmael is going to be the heir that God would bless. He talks about that in the end of, of chapter 17. Now, for many of us, we look back and go, whoa, whoa, why would, why would God do that? I mean, Ishmael is the father of the, the Arab people. You have to remember, at this point in, in his life, Ishmael's 13 years old. There's, there's not just, he's not just a little baby. There is a relationship that Abraham has with Ishmael. And by the time we get to, I think, chapter 18 or so, where Ishmael is being sent out, 
Abraham is, is having, the, having him leave after Isaac is born and Sarah sees Ishmael laughing and he kicks him out. Ishmael is right around 18, 19 years old. He's not, he's not a little boy. So there is this relationship that's here. But God says in chapter 17, verse 21, that my covenant I will establish is with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you a season from next year. So even at this point, God, Abraham is still by faith having to walk in his life. This covenant that is being promised to him, yes, we're in a, we're in a land. Yes, you're telling me, God, that there is going to be this, this uh, one coming, that I'm going to have children, and yet it's, it's not happening. Yet Abraham has to walk by faith. What's interesting, even at the end of chapter 17, that whole rite of circumcision, Abraham goes back through, and he actually practices that with all the men in his house, and even Ishmael, because he's hoping and thinking, but God says, no, Isaac is going to be the one who I established, which now you get to the point where Ishmael is going to be sent away. He gets sent away and because Isaac's been born, and now the only one left in the house, his only son is Isaac. Ishmael is no more. Ishmael is gone, off the picture, out of the story. And God looks, to, God looks to Abraham and he says, all right, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, the one you love. And I want you to take him to the mountains and, and make him a burnt offering. And I'll tell, you, I'll tell you where to go. And so he does that in chapter 22. And we know the story of Abraham and Isaac where, where God now, or Abraham now takes Isaac with him. And as they're going toward the mountain, Isaac's like, well, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham, dropping one of those little foreshadowing breadcrumbs, the Lord will provide, you know, the sacrifice. He, he's not at the point, but we know in Hebrews, Hebrews 11 even talks about that Abraham's faith was thinking that if nothing else, God is going to raise his son from the dead because he understood the promise that God gave. The covenant that God said was going to be, not only is Isaac going to be born, but remember back in chapter uh, in chapter 17, verse 21, God says, I will establish my covenant with Isaac. Isaac is now born. God is now telling him to take Isaac and sacrifice him. Somewhere in Abraham's mind, as he's processing all of this through, he's looking and saying, God is faithful to his covenant. He has said he is going to do this. He's made this oath to me. He's made this promise. I'm going to trust in my covenant-keeping God that he will keep the covenants, the promises that he, he lays out. And so he, he brings them to this point, and he, he gets to the point where we know he's going to plunge the knife or light him on fire or whatever he's going to do, and God stops him, and he says, don't do it. I know that you're going to obey me. I know that you're going to do this. God provides the land. They call it Jehovah-Jireh because the Lord provides. And then if you go down to the end of chapter 22, uh, toward verse 16, he says, uh, as he's talking to Abraham and he's going to talk to Isaac as well, here he says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed. Who is his seed? At this point his only seed is Isaac. He's like, I'm going, to, I'm going to bless and multiply Isaac. So Isaac is hearing this and like, Isaac now knows, hey, I'm going to have kids. I'm going to have many kids because right now I'm the only one. As the stars of the heaven and as the sands on the seashore, 
and your seed shall possess the gates of their enemy. They're going to be a powerhouse. They're going to have those who are going to come in and, and not be able to overthrow them. In your seed, all nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Don't miss that, that last phrase there where it's, uh, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. He's looking and telling Abraham, he's looking and telling Isaac, through you guys, there is going to be this one. Rewind the foreshadowing event all the way back to Genesis 3. We did not know up until this point, we don't know where the promised one is going to come. The one who is going to crush the head. The one who is going to be a blessing to all nations. But as we start to see God progressively reveal and unfold his story, we now see that the promised one, the one who through all nations of this earth will be blessed, is going to come through not only the lineage of Abraham, but now through the lineage of Isaac. And, and God is going to use it. So until this point, we didn't know where to look. But we now know that through Isaac, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That Isaac, the offspring, the Jew, he was not enough. Okay, that's important. He was Jewish. He was in covenant. He was circumcised. He was in the covenant family. And yet that was not sufficient enough. Just because he was born into a family, he is not the promised one. He says, there's going to be one that's going to come after you, whose all the nations will be blessed. Isaac is not the promised one. There is the promised one was coming. And we see that a substitute is provided for Isaac. Now, all these are going to play in as we unfold how the Abrahamic covenant fleshes itself out through, through even into the New Testament. So God's covenant with Abraham is the foundation for all of God's dealing with humanity from that point forward. God is, how is God dealing with the scriptures? How is God dealing with the world? It is, he is dealing with the world's problem of sin. He's going to deal with it through the Abrahamic covenant, through the promises, through this one who is going to come. And he uses this to, to, to move things forward. We see that Genesis ends. By the time you get to the end of the book of Genesis, it ends with the offspring of Abraham being a great multitude they're down in Egypt, but they are, they are numbering into the hundreds of thousands, if not into the millions. There is a great multitude, like the sands of the sea, and even going to, to exponentially grow beyond that. Exodus, by the time we get to that, by way of redemption from slavery, is going to move Abraham's offspring toward the gift and the possession of that promised land. We get that. We, they come out of Egypt, and as they're coming out of Egypt, and they're heading toward the land of promise, the one that has been promised, what, what, it's not just, hey, we're going to take you out of Egypt and give you a land. No, this was the land that God had promised to Abraham, to our father Abraham, way back. The Jews understood that our covenant-keeping God is going to be giving us this land. The rest of the Old Testament, as we go forward, Abraham, deals with Abraham's descendants and their relationship to this covenant-keeping God. How, how God has kept his covenant to Abraham. And then it's going to unfold is how do we relate to this God? And God gives them the Mosaic covenant. says, here's how you relate to me. You keep my laws. You do my commands. And he, he gives them the Mosaic covenant so that they, they interact with this covenant keeping God. And then as we enter into the New Testament, we're introduced to what's called the New Covenant. Even in, in, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah and Ezekiel talk about it and give us the understanding of the New Covenant. 
But it speaks of this universal, the blessing that is going to be given to all nations through the seed of Abraham. Ultimately, that seed, singular, is going to be Jesus Christ. So we see that the tentacles of the Abrahamic covenant go, permeate Scripture. They are everywhere. We, cannot, we can't look at Scripture without having some of the understanding of what God promised to Abraham, what God said is going to happen for Abraham and his descendants and through his descendants. And so we have this, this continual blessing that is now going to be given to us. So how is the Abrahamic covenant, which was given so long ago, how is it relevant for you and I? I mean, for the most part, looking across, I don't know that maybe, maybe one or two, you have some Jewish blood in you, but probably not too many, not too, more mostly Gentiles sitting here. Okay, we don't have the, the, the land promised to us. We don't have, how, how is this relevant to you and I? Is it? Or do we just need to look and say, oh, that was Old Testament stuff. We're in the age of grace. We don't have to worry about it. That's, that's a faulty view of scripture. Just because something is in the Old Testament doesn't mean it's not profitable for us. So we need to look and say, how is it, how is it good for us? One, through Abraham, we can notice that God is restoring humanity to himself. God is restoring humanity to himself. Humanity fell in the garden. He preserves humanity through the flood. He promises to Abraham that there is going to be one who is going to help bring a blessing to all nations. God is working through the line of Abraham to restore us to him. You and I, fallen humanity, in our sinfulness, we needed one to restore that relationship. You can't do it. I can't do it. Our sinfulness prevents us to stand before a holy God. That is where Jesus Christ steps in. He is restoring us, restoring humanity to himself. Through Abraham, God blessed all nations. Let's go over to, let's go to Romans 14, chapter 4. And basically, I would encourage you to put, put a little piece of paper, if you can, between Romans 4 and Galatians 3. Because that's where we're going to end up here for the last little bit of our time. In 17, we, we see that uh, for this reason, it's by faith and order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all descendants, not only those who are of the law, the Jews, those who are following the Mosaic law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So he, he talks about uh, here, Abraham, through Abraham, one is going to come that is going to bless. Toward the end of the chapter, now it's written, verse 23, for his sake alone uh, that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed or given, uh, it will, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus from the dead, uh, who has delivered us our offenses and raised us from our justi- uh, for our justification. There is, there is this one who is going to, to bless us, who is going to reconcile us. It is, it is Jesus Christ. So God through Abraham is going to bless all nations. Salvation is by grace and it's through faith. Remember back to Abraham, chapter 15, verse 6. It's not, it says, Abraham believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. That is before Abraham is circumcised. It is before some of his works. So it's not Abraham working to gain his salvation, 
but rather it is the, the faith that we have and it is by grace that that salvation comes. And so as he, as he lays, out, lays out in the chapters there, uh, what should we say? Uh, then that Abraham our father is pertaining to the flesh has found. For if Abraham, verse 2 of chapter 4, were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory. He can boast in that, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. It is belief, it is faith. We'll talk more about that in the morning service. Now to him that works is a reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. So if a person can work for their salvation, then God owes them their salvation. But God owes us nothing because it is God's grace that salvation is offered. But to him that works not, and believes, uh, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So he uses the picture of Abraham. He uses the story of Abraham to highlight and to remind us it's not by our works. In fact, Galatians 3 is going to talk about those who are keeping the law. That is not how a person is saved. It is by grace through faith. And so God uses this picture of Abraham. He used the Abrahamic covenant to talk about through Abraham, the one who's going to bless you. He's the one who brings about salvation. Salvation is through substitution. As we see the story of Abraham and Isaac, God provided the lamb, the ram for him. That ram became the substitution. We can go to many New Testament references about God, Jesus Christ being our propitiation, the one who takes our wrath, the one who becomes our substitute, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He becomes that ram just as in the story and the unfolding of the covenant with Abraham and Isaac. Jesus Christ becomes that lamb to atone for our sins. Salvation enables us to live righteously. Uh, let's go to Colossians 2. I f- forgot I put that reference in, but that's, I like that one. And it goes back to this idea, uh, I alluded to it already, about, about circumcision. But uh, Colossians chapter 2. Verse 11 and, uh, through 14. Paul says, In whom also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, not made with hands, in putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, the circumcision of the heart, the cutting away through by Jesus Christ, not, not a fleshly circumcision as was practiced with Abraham, as was practiced by the Jews, but now he's looking and saying there is a circumcision, a cutting away by Christ. And he says, uh, buried with him in baptism, wherein you are also risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins and, your, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all your transgressions, blotting out the handwriting uh, of ordinances which was against us, which was contrary to us, and took out of the way by nailing it to the cross. He uses the picture from the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision, the rite of circumcision that entered in. He says, when we get saved, Christ doesn't fleshly circumcise us, but rather he circumcises our heart. He cuts away the sinfulness. He makes alive that which was dead. He is removing, and it's entering us into that relationship, that covenant aspect with Christ. 
Now, think about it back to the Abrahamic covenant. For an individual not to be circumcised was to be cut off, to be, to be put away. And yet Christ circumcises our heart. He takes away, he removes the wickedness to give us his robes of righteousness, to put us in a right standing and relationship with him. We enter into this covenant with him. This new covenant that, that no longer are the laws written on the tablets, they're written on our hearts. That the Spirit of God dwells within us and works in us. And if we're in a covenant relationship with Christ, with the covenant-keeping God, how am I doing on keeping the covenant? On following the commands that God establishes for me? I don't, I don't keep God's laws just because I do it so that you're happy, so that I can keep a job, so that I look good when I come to church. That's all legalism. That's all doing stuff so other people around me think I'm, think I'm a righteous person. I keep God's laws because he has removed from me that sinfulness. He has placed his robes of righteousness with me. And I have entered into this covenant relationship with God. And now it's my responsibility to keep the commands, the desires that he, the faithful one, expects me to keep. I can't look at Israel and say, well, they should just do, what, do, the, do the covenants and they should obey God's laws and that's good for them. But I'm under grace so I can, I can do whatever I want to do and live however I want to do. Paul deals with that, Romans 6. Should we continue in sin that God's grace can abound? He says, no, God forbid. As I enter into this relationship with God through salvation, I have entered into a blessed covenant with him. I may not have understood all of that when I first prayed to get saved, but as my understanding of God's scripture deepens, I have a responsibility to be following, to do what, what God calls me to do. Salvation allows us also to take part in spiritual blessing. Galatians chapter 3. As as Paul is talking here, Galatians chapter 3, look at 8 and 9. Yeah, 8 and 9. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the nations be blessed. How are we blessed by Abraham? We are blessed by Abraham. It's not because we're pro-Israel. We are blessed by Abraham because of Jesus Christ, because of the one who has come uh, through him. Uh, chapter, or down in verse 14, he says uh, the ble- that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Down in verse 26. says, For you are all children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For we are all one in Christ. And if you be in, if ye be Christ, or you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If you are saved, you are in the lineage, the, 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 not the national 
genetic line of Abraham, but the spiritual, we are spiritual children of Abraham. Because through him came this one, Jesus Christ, who we now enter into a relationship that we receive the blessings of God because of Jesus Christ, that we have this new relationship with him. The Abrahamic covenant, it weaves its way through it. We see it continually. We are experiencing the blessings that God promised Abraham. We are experiencing the joy that Abraham said others would experience because of Abraham's faithfulness, because of Abraham's lineage, because of Abraham's line and his seed. We, we are able to experience that and we, we can enjoy that. Salvation here, as we look at it, salvation has a global purpose. Abraham was to be a blessing to all nations. His, his lineage, his offspring was to be to all nations. Isaac was going to be to all nations. Galatians, again, the, the passages talk about that it's, know ye not that those who are uh, of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And he talks about at the end of verse 8, and the, all the nations will be blessed. For us to just simply look and be content with salvation being just for us is not understanding the full extent and ramification of not only the Abrahamic covenant that it's to be to all nations, but that we in salvation, in our relationship with Jesus Christ, now have the responsibility to help others experience the blessing that Abraham, Abraham's seed offers to them through Jesus Christ. We are to have a global perspective on salvation, just like Abraham was and just like God from the beginning. God has always been a, a missiological, a missions-minded God. That it's not just for a few, it is for all nations, for all the world. Salvation looks forward to a greater place. One in Hebrews chapter 11, thought this was an interesting one as we, as we wrap up this morning. Hebrews 11, as we're talking about the, the Hall of Faith chapter and things that, things that are going on, you know, the great faith. And we know that Abraham is in there uh, and for, for an extended little portion here. But he, he, looks, he looks in Hebrews 11, uh, verses 9, 10. It says, By faith he sojourned in the land of promise. Again, there's that land that has been covenanted, that has been promised to him, as in a strange country dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So it's, it's continuing down through their lineage. Verse 10, For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. While Abraham was looking, he was looking and longing for this place that is greater than where he was at. He looked for the place whose builder and maker was God. Verse 16, but now they desire a better country, that is, a, he a heavenly one. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Even in Abraham's longings and journeyings and lookings to have a land, to have a location, Hebrews lets us in on a little bit more. It gives us a little bit of the rest of the story, that Abraham was even looking forward to a place whose builder and maker is God that is far better. And, and don't we? Don't we have that same longing that Abraham? We're here. We enjoy some of the things here. But we long for, we look forward to that home in heaven. To be that place. To know that God is going and he's prepared a place for us. And that we can look forward to that place to be there one day. 
as you, as you look through the Abrahamic covenant, I'd encourage, because a number of you weren't in the class and we were able to dive in much deeper. But take, take some time and study that out and see how the blessings and the promises, the covenant that God makes with, God, uh, with Abraham, how that really does weave its way throughout Scripture. And hopefully, hopefully that's helped you a little bit this morning. Look forward to uh, doing some more. Next week, we'll, uh, our class is going to look at the Mosaic Covenant. We'll start looking at what, what God is doing and how they relate to him. So let's get ready for worship. We'll head out and uh, look forward to that time with you.